I think the first time I really became aware of the importance of, of anomalous experience was actually in the context of studying the philosophy of science. And I'm, I guess I would say I'm like a minor philosophy nerd. Like I, I enjoy philosophy. I was sharing with someone earlier though, I've had mixed experience with working with philosophers. I was for a short time a philosophy major at NC State University after dropping out of computer engineering. I thought maybe philosophy will give me what I'm seeking. Turned out I needed to go to a Buddhist university to find that. But, but Western philosophy is quite interesting. Um, philosophy in general, there are some cool philosophers out there who are actually not just up in their heads talking about abstract concepts, but are actually have embodied some of these things. I remember my, my, the person that got me turned on to philosophy, why I even went into that field to begin with at all, was a professor at NC State named Dr. Reginald Savage. And Dr. Savage was a, he was an expert on the philosophy, a philosopher named Leibniz. And he also was just a very interesting dude. He was built like a bodybuilder. Like he did a bunch of strength training. He was like six, six. He sold, he made and sold his own chocolate truffles and became obsessed with that. He was an African-American philosopher in a field dominated by white men. And he was a true philosopher. Like he would say things in class about how for many years, he actually held this view that if he couldn't see it or experience it with his own senses, it, he wasn't going to take it to be true. So he'd be having these arguments with like scientists who'd be talking about atomic theory. And he's like, atomic theory? What are you talking about? Like, I don't see any atoms. <laughs> Which sounds nuts in a certain way, but it was also really cool that he, to me, that he was living philosophy. It wasn't just this thing, this idea. Anyway, so that's what turned me on to philosophy. And of course, there's lots of really terrible philosophies. But one of the things I found in the philosophy of science that's actually really interesting is the work from a person named Thomas Kuhn. And Kuhn is really, he's quite well known for his work on talking about paradigms. He, I think, coined that term at least the way we understand it today. And he wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he tries to, I think, describe in some way how science as a field progresses. And in that book, he talks a lot about anomalies or the anomalous. I want to share one quote here from the book where he says, discovery commences with the awareness of anomaly i.e. with the recognition that nature has somehow violated the paradigm-induced expectations that govern normal science. It then continues with a more or less extended exploration of the area of anomaly, and it closes only when the paradigm theory has been adjusted so that the anomalous has become the expected. So here he's describing a way of understanding the scientific process and how it works. And I find this quite interesting, both from a perspective of understanding science, but also from the perspective of understanding our own experience. And here I'd like to bring back up that idea, again, from Ken Wilber, an integral philosopher, that you know, there's these different perspectives that we can take as, be, as human beings that are very common 
uh, one of the perspectives we take is the first person experience perspective, the subjective perspective. We look at things from the point of view of our own experience. And we talk about things in terms of my experience and what I'm experiencing. I, this is the basic pronoun of the first person, I. But you can also talk about them in the third person perspective. If you uh, imagine uh, looking at something from the outside, you're taking it as an object. We call this the objective perspective. We're looking at things as third, from the third person pronoun is it or its. We're looking at things from that point of view. And that's basically, that perspective is, a, is basically what gives rise to the whole scientific project. Um, and then there's the second person perspective of I and you and we coming together here on this retreat to explore our first person experience together and to talk about all these ideas relating to our practice. And I think each of these perspectives are really important and that I'm going to make this claim that the process that Thomas Kuhn describes about science is happening also in these other, from these other points of view. That actually, that's the same way that we grow and develop throughout each of these ways of looking. And in fact, in that book, he goes on to point this out. He actually says, it's very likely that this the same phenomena holds up for people's psychologies. And he, then he goes on to cite this interesting, interesting research study, psychology research, in which people were shown different playing cards. And within the, and they're just basically asked to identify the card. Here's the king of hearts. Okay. Which card is this? The king of hearts. But what they did is they put in a certain number of cards that were anomalous. It was like the king of hearts, but actually it's like the heart was a spade. And there'd be some kind of shift in how it was presented. And then they basically looked at what point did people start to become aware of this anomalous, these anomalous cards. Mostly in the beginning, when there's just a low number of them, they, what happens is they just see, see, see the king of hearts as a spade, and they say, king of hearts. They don't even see, they, it doesn't even register. And I want to talk about the stages leading up to a paradigm shift. What is it that actually happens as we move toward a paradigm shift? Well, the first stage is we're actually ignorant. We don't actually know. We don't even notice the anomalous. It's happening. We, we can see in retrospect that it was happening, but in that moment, our paradigm, that is what we've come to expect, is determining what we see to a large degree. And so we're not even aware of the anomalous. And he goes on to describe how as you increase the number of anomalous cards, usually people start to get it. Usually at some point, there's a kind of, you could say an awareness that dawns that something's off there becomes a, an explicit or conscious awareness of the anomalous. And we start to see, oh, something's not right here. If you can think about your own practice, right, as you learn how to meditate, again, just contemplating that. What for you in your early practice life was like this, where suddenly you became aware of something that you hadn't seen before, and yet recognize, oh, that's actually how it's always been. I can think for me, one, one thing that was quite interesting was to working with the noting method. I was working with Kenneth Folk. This was probably 2005. And I was working on getting better at noticing what was happening in my experience. 
And as he gave me instructions, I went back to, to put them into practice. And I started to have this anomalous experience in which I would hear a car going by, but not like I usually did. Instead of hearing a car going by, there was a sound and then there was a visual image that went through my mind, like it passed from the left to right hand side. And those things were no longer one thing that was a car, a concept of a car going by. There was like this immediate visual and then immediate auditory and then visual phenomena that followed it. And it was like, dun, dun, dun. And I started to notice that more and more. It was an anomalous experience. I was like, wait, this isn't how I normally experience things. And I told Kenneth that and he said, great. <laughs> You're seeing actually how things are. So in the second stage, as we lead up to a paradigm shift, there's an awareness that dawns. This is the awareness stage. We become aware of the anomaly as an anomaly. And here, I think this requires maybe just from us like a kind of openness. Maybe that's all we need to do is just be open to recognizing the anomalous instead of immediately shutting down. Of course, that's the next stage. <laughs> After we notice an anomaly, there is resistance, some amount. Maybe it's just minor anomaly. Maybe you actually were told to expect it, so you're not that shocked. A true anomaly would be completely unexpected, right? It's like, even if you've heard about it, uh, or in this case, a true anomaly would be like, you have, no one's ever discovered this thing before. You're like the first person to run across it. Normally, though, we're lucky that this isn't usually how it works. We're not usually at the cutting edge of human knowledge in our practice. If you are, great. That's awesome. Um, but usually we're rediscovering things that others have discovered. And it's not super shocking, but there is still, even, even if we've been told, oh yeah, things change. And the concept of hearing a car is actually made up of multiple sensations that happen in rapid succession. It's not actually a car. Like, even though I could understand that cognitively, it's another thing to then start experiencing it on the regular. Like, oh, no, actually, the mind is constructing, weaving together perception in real time. Lama Lena, Dzogchen teacher, the Tibetan tradition, American Dzogchen teacher, she says, once you've interpreted a sensation, that's called a perception. And so this is really important. We're always interpreting our sensations. In fact, another Western philosopher, Immanuel Kant, he said, a, perc a percept is like a perception without concept is blind. If we just were experiencing sensation directly without some idea of what was happening, we wouldn't we have any way of knowing or talking about or cognizing what is happening. So that process of interpretation, of interpreting sensation is constantly occurring. And because of that, we have these paradigms, we have these views or beliefs or kind of frameworks that we hold, whether consciously or unconsciously, about what's happening. And it's not just that we're applying that like after the fact, it's, it can even be a filter before the fact, like it, it filters out things. We don't even see. So that's the ignorance stage. As we become aware that there are these anomalies and we start to 
maybe even see more anomalies. We start to really question this fundamental way of looking at things. There is resistance. There's resistance to change. And it's not all bad. It's not like we shouldn't be resisting these things. Imagine if every time you experience something that was anomalous, you completely changed your worldview. How many times are we wrong? <laughs> like even in the world of the unidentified flying objects, or they're now being called the unidentified anomalous phenomena, even with these things, as scientists are now starting to study them, they're seeing like a good 95% plus of, this, of, these, of these phenomena are actually explainable. But then there's like a small percentage that are not. <laughs> okay. And that's the phenomena that we're working with here is the, the kind that you can explain. Maybe at the stage of resistance, you try to explain it, right? You try to make sense of it. You try to find a natural explanation. And what natural means is an explanation that fits your preconceptions. That's what it means. So natural is quite interesting. We use the term natural often to mask things that are not natural. Yeah. Or to us, they feel natural. Okay, fair enough. This is how I think things really are. Even though I've seen how things really are, my understanding of that change so many times. Still. Now, this resistance is wise in a certain way, right? So we don't want to just immediately change our whole view, our fundamental kind of view of what things are. I don't think that's appropriate. But if this anomalous experience continues to stack up and other ones like it indicate to us there's something wrong with how we're viewing the world, it's not quite fitting the data, then there's some amount, I think, to which we have to accept this uncertainty. We, and this is, you, could, you can hear this is really mirrors the process of insight. Like this is like the dark night of the process. This is like the disillusionment stage. It's like, oh no, I don't know what's true anymore. I used to have the solid ground beneath me, this view that could make sense of everything or nearly everything. And now the very view, the very lens through which I'm perceiving reality is in question. So this is scary to the self because part of the self, part of what we do as selves is we identify with views. And I don't know how to avoid this because how else do you function in the world? How else do you make choices and form decisions without having a view? We can outsource our meaning-making, our sense-making to others, but then it's still the same problem of the view that the collective holds is wrong. Like we're still going to notice these anomalies. I'm sure if any of you have grew up in a traditional religious household, right? Every religion has this, Buddhism included, where you've got the beautiful teachings of the tradition, and then you've got how people actually are in their lives. <laughs> And for kids, they recognize this. They see the anomalous. It's like, wait, you're, I'm supposed to treat my neighbor with love. And yet I see my parents <laughs> screaming at the neighbor. Ah, okay. What's going on there? Huh. Or I saw recently, I was like, Fowell Jr., Jerry Fowell Jr., who's being accused of masturbating in the corner of a room while watching his wife have sex with a young bartender. It's like, oh, whoa, that's shocking. If you really believe, you know, what the, te the fundamentalist teachings on morality and the Christian tradition, it's like, 
what? So it's anomalous. And then we have to make sense of it. And that, that leads to a huge potential disillusionment process. And that's painful. It's difficult. But if we don't, at that point, simply try to ignore what's happening, to revert to old ways of looking, or to just simply squash the anomaly, we continue actually to explore, to be drawn into the mystery. What is really happening here? What's going on? How can I understand this? This is the stage of exploration where we begin to further explore and probe the anomalous. What is this? What's really happening here? Okay, now I can see that what I thought was a car driving by is actually a rapid succession of sensations. What other things might actually be like that in my experience? Could even the sense I have of myself be like that? not just the car going by, but even the very sense of, I, of me. According to Buddhism, could the paradigm that we're handed there to look through, yes, even the self is like that. And so we can, through formal investigation, through replication, through repeating the experiment over and over again, and through, I think, cross-checking with our peers or with our mentors, people who also are interested in this stuff and have been doing the same exploration, we can gain a deeper understanding of what's happening and start to make more sense of it. This leads to the final stage of what I'm calling you know, the stages leading up to a paradigm shift in which there is a genuine transformation in how we're looking at the world and ourselves and each other we change our paradigm or it is changed and it takes into account this new anomalous phenomena. As Thomas Kuhn says, it closes only when the paradigm theory has been adjusted so that the anomalous has become the expected. So I think we all know like in the history of science, like there's lots of examples of this, right? Like the most famous one probably is the shift right, from the geocentric view of the universe to a solar-centric view, where instead of thinking like everything is revolving around the earth, i.e. us, <laughs> we start to see through observation, thank you, Galileo, that actually it doesn't, the, da the data doesn't back that up. That's not actually how things seem to be moving. In reality, things are moving around the sun. And in reality, like everything's moving around some kind of massive black hole, the center of the galaxy or something. And then beyond that, there's probably some more. It's like it keeps expanding. We don't know what's happening. It depends on what scale we're looking in, what we're looking at as to what we see. So there is this possibility for transformation in which we come up with a new story to make sense of the data in a way that truly does make more sense. And I think it's really important here that we don't just reject our old paradigm and exchange it for one that has a whole bunch of other problems that don't account for what we already know <laughs> for things, because that's very easy to do too. That maybe isn't at, a, at the earlier stage of resistance, that's a temptation. Let me just reject this whole paradigm and adopt the complete opposite one 
But then the problem is that one's got problems too. There's anomalies. So we're actually looking at a true evolution here. This is the evolutionary process, the way that our sense-making evolves. It evolves through these anomalies stacking up and then eventually bursting forward, bursting out into a new way of looking, new way of seeing that transcends yet includes the previous ways of seeing. So this is an idea from Ken Wilber that development is a process of transcending and including. We don't actually leave behind what we already knew. We just have to make sense of it in a new way that accounts for more, that it's more inclusive fundamentally. And so you could say the more inclusive your way of making sense of the world is, and the more accurate it is, the more true it is. It's not just that there's all these different kinds of paradigms out there and they're all equal. No, actually, some are more inclusive than others. Some make better sense of others. Some are better at predicting what's going to happen than others. And that can be measured. That can be seen. So we're really looking to align ourselves with what's true in a sense. And I wouldn't claim that there's just one truth. I think of universal truths in the plural. These truths that are true all of the time, everywhere, for everyone. That's to me, the standard of what is universally true. And here's the thing, even though we think we've got the truth, early Buddhism said, here's the truth. Everything is changing. There is dissatisfaction. It's baked into being a conditional life form. And there's no solid fixed self. Even though all of that sounds true, right? Like it's not the complete truth. Later in, Buddhist, in the Buddhist evolution, that was reinterpreted to mean something slightly different. You know, where instead of understanding the truth that way, the truth is put more in terms of interdependence. There's no fixed self because the self is co-arising with all the other selves. It doesn't mean there's no self. It just means there's no independent self, no self that's possibly doing its own thing by itself. So instead of negating the self, which can lead to kind of nihilism, the second iteration of Buddhism recognizes this problem and itself goes through a paradigm shift. And part of the result of that paradigm shift is that compassion becomes just as important as emptiness, as this view of emptiness, of interdependence, um, because emptiness is understood as interdependence and thus if anyone is suffering, you are not completely free because you are not separate from everyone. Compassion becomes an immediate implication of this realization. Whereas it was there in the first iteration, the first turning, but it wasn't emphasized and it didn't hold the same value as the realization of emptiness. Uh, and so this is actually a huge shift, even though it's a subtle change, right? In a certain way of how we're understanding things. So paradigm shifts can be like that. Like from the outside, we may not even get the difference, like emptiness, like they're all just talking about the same thing. No, actually, we have to understand the phenomena in question in order to, ha to, to have an informed opinion about it. So again, going back to the big three perspectives, first, second, and third person. I'm talking about this mostly here now in terms of our meditation practice of our inner lives. Part of the 
purpose of mindfulness practice, for instance, is to get underneath more complex phenomena, things that appear to be happening, and to see what are those things made up of. It's very similar as in science, right? Like right now, there's a lot of stuff going on around seeing what the subatomic particles are like. What are all these different subatomic particles? And so we're smashing atoms together, trying to get these little things to bounce off so we can see them, measure them. In a very similar way with mindfulness, we're trying to understand and see what things are made of. And instead of using an atom smasher, we use our attention, we use consciousness to explore itself. This is the first person perspective, phenomenology, the study of phenomena in the first person. So I often think of myself as a phenomenologist. I'm interested in studying the phenomena that arises inside experience. But part of what social meditation taught me is that this phenomena that's arising in my experience isn't independent of what's arising for others. Again, back to that sort of shift from the first iteration to the second iteration of Buddhism. This is the shift. So really, I'd say it's more accurate to say we're interpersonal phenomenologists. We are exploring our inner worlds together because those inner worlds are being shaped by each other and by the views that we share and the subtle disagreements that we have and the, and the joys and sorrows of doing this stuff together. And then in the third person, there's anomalous activity happening all around us that we're, we don't always know what's happening. This Chinese spy balloon thing in America happened recently where I heard all this stuff on the news, Chinese spy balloon, Chinese spy And it wasn't until my friend Will on Facebook said, oh, just saw the Chinese spy balloon heading over my house. And I go outside and I look up and there it is. <laughs> I can see the damn thing flying through the air. At that point, it became very real. I'm like, okay, it was just an idea. There's a Chinese spy balloon. And then I'm like, wow, I'm looking at it going, whoa. And suddenly the implications of it hit me at a deeper level. I'm like, huh, like there's stuff in the air. I like happening. I don't know what's going on. Apparently we don't even know. And I think some of you know this, if you watch, if you follow me on Twitter, which I'm not saying, I'm necessarily saying I recommend, <laughs> but if you do, you probably know that I'm also interested and obsessed with UFOs. I want to talk a little bit about that, the Dharma of UFOs and how this relates here to me, because I think this is a great example of a kind of collective anomaly that we seem to be collectively grappling with right now in the outside world. So this is, I think, a third person anomaly, you could say. Although, of course, it's true that we only ever experience these outer things through the lens of our first person. So the first person perspective is always something we have to look through. But here we're looking through this first person and we're saying, okay, I'm hearing right of all of this sort of reports of anomalous phenomena. 2017, there was an important article that came out in the New York Times written by Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal, in which they exposed that there'd been this secretly funded U.S. government project funded by the late Senator Harry Reid 
that was tasked to, to investigate unidentified anomalous or aerial phenomena. And that in fact, through the study, there had been lots of documentation, firsthand reports, and even, even objective radar data that was recorded of these events. To this day, the people experience them do not understand. And some of that footage was even released. It's like the tip of an iceberg, apparently, of footage that we the our government has in America. And then in the last few days, a whistleblower, a highly decorated intelligence officer in the US government named David Grush comes forward and he says, I've been since 2019, I've been part of this new UAP task force. I had a credible clearance, like clearance to be read into virtually anything, any secret operations happening in the government. And I use them in order to investigate because a lot of people are coming to me saying we have a craft retrieval project. We're retrieving, have been retrieving craft for at least 90 years, close to a century and trying to reverse engineer non-human intelligent, like craft, physical crafts that seem to have completely different engineering, heavy elements that we don't see naturally occurring. And not only that, he says, and we found bodies with them that are not human. <laughs> okay. So even though me, I've actually been interested in following the subject for a while, even for me, I'm like, what, <laughs> what are you saying right now? Now, the thing is at this point, it's like hearing about the Chinese spy balloon. Okay. I haven't actually seen any unidentified aerial phenomena or witness myself. I have actually a couple friends who have, which is why I tend to take this seriously, but it's just an idea, right? But wow, what a huge idea. Right. It's on the same level potentially, right? Of, oh yeah, like the earth is at the center of reality. Like it spins around the sun. It's like, oh, what if we're not alone? What if it's intelligent species? What if the universe or the multiverse or whatever the hell this is, is teeming with intelligent life? And what if it's not all kind or it like has our best interests in mind? Or what if it does? I don't know. We don't know. Right. And so I would say, this is a good example of how collectively we go through a process of really trying to understand the anomalous and it has huge implications for how we view ourselves and our place in the world. I'm hoping we get to the bottom of this one. I'm hoping to have my own first person experience to help verify or not at some point, whatever this phenomenon is. And for those that are interested, there's actually a whole meditative method to do this called CE5. If you're ever curious to try to call forth an unidentified anomalous phenomena and you want to get your camera ready, there's apparently a method that you could try. It's a kind of imaginal meditation. I've done it before. I didn't get any good, I didn't get good results, but I'd like to try it again. And it just, to me, it's a kind of wild idea, right? That maybe actually we could investigate this phenomena with our own first person experience. Um, okay, maybe so. I'll leave that open. I don't know. Maybe next retreat, that'll be one of the guided meditation <laughs> sessions. <laughs> so yeah, the anomalous. I want to close here with a quote from 
Shunri Suzuki Roshi, the author of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I think this is just a useful attitude to have as we explore the anomalous, as we basically get into the territory where we don't really know what's happening. He says, if your mind is empty, it's always ready for anything. It's open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So the expert is the one who's holding a paradigm firmly. You could say from a Buddhist perspective, grasping onto ideas about how things are. But in the beginner's mind, which we're training directly in meditation, learning how to suspend our preconceptions about what this is on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, we can apply that same beginner's mind to any phenomena, whether it's a first-person phenomena, a third-person phenomena, or phenomena that's rising between us. We can use that same mindset to maintain openness, to be ready for anything, to be open to everything without having to believe everything that we're told. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community, and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.